Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll address the causes and treatments for renal cell carcinoma, or kidney cancer. We're always taught that patients with end-stage renal disease who are on dialysis actually do have a higher rate of developing kidney cancer. The question is whether they're found to have more, more of this cancer because they're surveilled more. Plus, what you need to know about the relationship of atrial fibrillation to stroke. What happens in atrial fib, instead of one signal going from point A to point B, you can have like 100 and 150 different signals just popping all over the place, and some get through and some don't. And we'll talk to a Wikipedian in residence for Consumer Reports about getting medical information online. We'll have all that in a selection from our Healing Muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we learn all about atrial fibrillation, or AFib, and how it can lead to stroke, plus getting the most reliable medical information online. But first, the newest information in the fight against kidney cancer. About 63,000 new cases of kidney cancer will occur this year alone in the United States, and approximately 14,000 people will die from this disease. Well, here to help us understand this deadly disease and what can be done to treat it is Dr. Oleg Shapiro. He's Associate Professor of Urology, Associate Professor of Radiation Oncology, and the Vice Chairman of the Department of Urology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Shapiro. Good morning, Thanks Linda. so much for coming in. So kidney cancer is, seems to be, is a deadly disease, but it seems to be on the rise. Explain that. Tell us about that. So uh, we're not really sure if it's truly on the rise or we're just detecting it better. Uh, as, as you know, a lot of people, when they come to the emergency department or they go to the primary care physician, they get CAT scans for a variety of uh, complaints. And uh, we uh, pick up uh, this disease, incidentally, in vast majority of cases in uh, 2016. Um, so the uh, rise in incidence may actually be somewhat artificial is because we're finding it more often. How about the death rate, though? Are, is that increasing, decreasing? Where are we at with that? So unfortunately, the death rate stays fairly stable. Um, it's because we don't have a very good uh, option to treat uh, advanced kidney cancer. Uh, so uh, we're always taught that the death rate is un unfortunately about 30 percent. Uh, and, uh, and then that has been staying relatively stable over the course of decades now. Is it because it's difficult? You said other than these incidental uh, opportunities to find it. Is it difficult to uh, diagnose or is it something that is more silent in terms of its showing up, and much like lung cancer where it's more advanced when you finally find it? Th that's absolutely correct. So uh, most of the uh, kidney cancer is actually silent until it's quote unquote too late. Uh, so people do not have symptoms. And again, it's mostly an incidental finding. The other problem is, and I'm not sure we're going to get to that a little bit later, is that it's not responsive to chemotherapy and radiation therapy. So um, the, the treatment options are fairly limited, and I'm sure we will be talking about it Yeah, at some I want to get into yeah. that in much more detail. When we say renal cell carcinoma, which is another term I've heard when referring to kidney cancer, explain the difference. What exactly is that? So renal, obviously, is kidney, and uh, renal cell carcinoma is, is the most common type of, of kidney cancer. Unfortunately, it's one of the more aggressive types. Um, there are multiple subtypes of kidney cancer that exist, but uh, renal cell carcinoma is the most, uh, is the most common, and uh, clear cell is the most common of that. So that's... Uh, basically a name for kidney cancer, a more medical term for kidney cancer. Do we have any idea what causes it to occur? Um, so we're not clear on that. Uh, smoking is a risk factor, but I have to be honest, it's not as high of a risk factor as it is for lung cancer or bladder cancer. Uh, obesity is a risk factor. Uh, high blood pressure, hypertension is a risk factor. Um, but uh, we do not have a clear-cut reason as to why that happens. Some uh, of these uh, of these patients actually do have family history of, of kidney cancer, which is also uh, important. 
in the sense that there may be some kind of genetic underlying predisposition to getting it. Absolutely. There's, we definitely know that syndromes associated with it. They're not very common, but they do exist. And we are starting to realize that more and more of these cancers are actually familial. Does dialysis or being on dialysis make you more predisposed also potentially uh, to developing a kidney cancer? We are always taught that patients with end-stage renal disease who are on dialysis actually do have a higher rate of developing kidney cancer. The question is whether they, uh, they are found to have more, more of this cancer because they're surveilled more. In other oh. words, they get ultrasounds routinely. They get some kind of a radiologic study routinely by the nephrologist, and that's how we find the disease. So we were saying it's silent in, until it's advanced. How would someone know what would the symptoms be at any point? Well, uh, in the early stages of this disease, there are really no symptoms. Um, even if the tumor grows to be very large, there may be no symptoms. Really? But that's correct. But, but if, if the disease becomes advanced, people can start developing pain. They can start, they can start developing blood in the urine. Um, and uh, they can actually uh, have a, a mass in their flank that they can feel. But th these days, it's fairly rare to have that triad, what we call a triad of kidney cancer. Do they have weight loss as well, that kind of wasting that goes on? Uh, unfortunately, it's the, one of the la later stages of the disease. So how do you begin to diagnose it? In other words, obviously there's this incidental occurrence, but once someone complains of any of these symptoms you've just outlined, what do you do? How do you diagnose? So if somebody complains of uh, these symptoms, they usually get a radiologic workup, which will include a CAT scan. And um, uh, the CAT scan usually is a telltale sign of, of, uh, of this disease. And if we do see a big kidney mass, um, you know, that has to be treated uh, fairly aggressively and fairly quickly. Is that the, is that the, um, the definitive radiologic methodology? Usually, a CAT scan versus, let's say, an MRI or some other? Usually CT is a, is a uh, very good starting point, and most of the time that's all we need to, to make a diagnosis. Do you do like a physical exam? Do you do blood chemistry? I mean, are there other things that go along with it or simply the, the imaging? Well, of course, when we see the patient, we do a history and we do a physical exam and, and subsequently we get urine tests and we get blood work. Uh, the blood work is very important to see what the kidney function is and that will help you plan further therapy. Um, but the CT truly is the most uh, important study that, that we do because that will tell us, the anatomy will tell us how big the tumor is, has it spread somewhere else, and then we can tailor the treatment based on that. Are there other tests that you have to do to determine its spread? For example, um, where does it generally spread to, and what are the kinds of testing you might want to be doing? So kidney tumors would, uh, would spread to the lymph nodes right nearby, so the same CT will tell us that information. Uh, but we also would obtain a CAT scan of the lungs, of the chest, uh, if the tumor is big enough, uh, and that will tell us if whether this has spread to the lungs. We may also obtain a bone scan to make sure that it has not spread to the bone, which is also a, a, an area where these uh, tumors like to go. So it has so it has a certain kind of pattern in terms of its spread. It likes to go to the lungs. Does it have to do with the type of cell, the cell type, or is it is it just the it has to do with the blood flow, um, and mm -hmm. the most common uh, sites are lymph nodes and then, and then the lungs. Mm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with urologist Dr. Oleg Shapiro, and we're talking about kidney cancer, renal cell carcinoma. So it's, you were saying earlier on, as we were just beginning to chat, that the treatment is really kind of limited these days, and it's always been somewhat limited. What exactly is the treatment of choice? Well, the treatment of choice for, for uh, localized, and localized meaning kidney cancer that has stayed in the kidney, is, is surgical, and uh, this tumor has to be removed. Um, we do this uh, most of the time robotically or laparoscopically now, so the patients have a much quicker recovery. They usually go home the next day. Um, and so let me interject here. So yeah. when you say that, help us understand what you mean exactly is taking place. Does that mean that you don't necessarily do a large open incision? You use more minimal, smaller, little keyhole incisions? Explain what, what you actually Correct. do. Correct. What I like to explain to my patients, you have a couple of bullet holes in the, in the belly. You have uh, small, small incisions, which obviously helps recovery. The, the robot helps us with visualization, decreased blood loss. It's not 
used for every single case, but but the vast majority of the time that's what we're able to use, and we're also able to save the kidney by removing just the tumor and leaving the rest of the healthy kidney behind because we know that the more kidney one has, the better off they are in the long term. So in the next 10, 20, 30 years of their life, they benefit from having that extra kidney tissue that was left behind. Sometimes it's impossible to leave that behind, and we have to take the whole kidney, which is okay, because most people can live with with, uh, one kidney. But ideally, we preserve as much of the kidney, healthy kidney tissue as possible. And how do you determine that in terms of during the surgical procedure or even prior to that, you see the size of the kidney, and then you go in and you do this minimally invasive attempt to take care of it. You have to look for margins and see if it has spread further. Is that how you know how much kidney to take? Right. So we usually know from the CAT scan prior to surgery whether we'll be able to, to do that, what we call a partial nephrectomy, removing just the tumor. So we're going into surgery knowing what our plan is. Uh, and then the rest of it, you're absolutely right. We have to check for margins, but usually comes with experience. When we cut out, we, we know that we got in, into the tumor and then we have to go deeper. Or, or we are okay and we have to just leave it alone, suture the kidney back up and, and, and get out, if you will. If someone's living with just one kidney and has had that kidney removed due to renal cell carcinoma, what concerns, what types of care, you know, what goes forward with that type of so we circumstance? Always... Well, first of all, there's no following with chemo or radi- radiation, correct? Well, that, that is correct. So, so again, the treatment is surgical. Uh, we do have to follow these patients with uh, radiologic studies such as CAT scans for basically the rest of their life. It, it's more frequent in the beginning after the surgery, but then it becomes less and less frequent as time goes on. Is it likely that if they've had kid, uh, cancer in one kidney, what's the likelihood that it might recur in the other? So that's a great question. It's a complicated question. It depends on the grade of the cancer, how aggressive it was to begin with, on the size. There are a lot of different factors go into this, but unfortunately, the cancer likes to recur. That's what its job. That's why I was born. Mm-hmm. So, so these patients have to be followed, even though deep inside, as a physician, I may think that they're quote-unquote cured. I don't like to use that word because the, pay, the the cancer does recur, and we have to follow these patients truly for the rest of their life. And that might have is that possibly because there's been some maybe microscopic metastasis of some of those cancer cells elsewhere to the next kidney over and what have you, and you you can't really know that. Absolutely, absolutely. You never know if one cell has escaped and it's laying dormant somewhere and may lay there for 20 years, and we're not sure what triggers it to wake up. So what's the prognosis then? I mean, and and obviously there's no help with radiation. There's no help with chemo. Once you've had renal cell carcinoma and it's been successfully, let's say, surgically removed, what's the prognosis for those patients? The prognosis is very good. It depends, again, on the grade, the size, and whether it has spread or metastasized or not. But if it's a small, what we call localized kidney tumor, uh, people are quote unquote cured, and and uh, they tend, they can recur, but it's very unlikely. So, but patients have to be followed. So this is this is the very important part. So if it's caught early, it can be cured. And so do you do that annually? I mean, how do you determine how frequently to CAT scan? So, so it depends on the grade. Again, if the higher grade cancers, we scan them more often than lower-grade cancers because, again, the common sense will tell you that the recurrence rates are higher for higher-grade or more aggressive a, tumors. A more aggressive Correct. cancer a cell grade type. more aggressive. Correct. Yep. So um, what, what are, there, are there any methods of prevention? Are there any things you can say to patients if they have a family history of this kind of thing or if, in fact, they've had an experience with renal cell carcinoma? Are there any things that they can do lifestyle-wise you know, to help prevent recurrence? So what I usually tell my patients, obviously smoking is a very important uh, factor. So if they can quit smoking, that's a big plus. Uh, Losing weight is a big plus. Uh, Controlling diabetes, controlling blood pressure. Um, Those are the main things that that one can do to really decrease their risk, if you will, of of developing this disease. One of the things I didn't ask you is, is this increase, the likelihood of this or its prevalence increase with age? 
or is it not age-related necessarily? It is age-related just like every other cancer. Uh, so the older we get, the more likely we get the disease, although going back to our, one of our first questions is the incidence is going up and we start seeing it more and more in young people because and, everybody gets scanned. And no one really knows why. Th that's correct. And nobody really knows why. What if we didn't find that tumor? What would happen in, with that person in 20, 30 years? And we truly don't know the answer because a lot of these tumors, they don't grow. They don't metastasize, but some do. And it's very difficult to, at this point, to tell which is which. It's a little, sounds a little bit like prostate cancer in the sense that, I mean, we don't always know how aggressive a particular type of prostate cancer can be. Th that's correct. But prostate cancer is a lot more uh, prevalent and a lot more indolent uh, disease, not not as aggressive. Not as aggressive. Kidney cancer is the most aggressive urologic malignancy there is. So a lot of people do die. A lot, a high percentage of people do die from this disease. In the very little bit of time yeah. you have left, what's in your crystal ball? What's on the horizon to, to try to cure this disease? Genetics. So g gene therapy, uh, like every other cancer, is going to be the uh, way to go. Uh, we will be finding uh, faulty genes, and hopefully we'll be fixing them or substituting them with healthy genes. And that hopefully will be preventing the disease or, or curing the disease. But that's unfortunately years and years away at this point. Thank you so much. This was such an important overview on this very important disease. I appreciate your coming in. My guest has been Dr. Oleg Shapiro. He's Associate Professor of Urology, Associate Professor of Radiation Oncology, and the Vice Chairman of the Department of Urology at Upstate Medical University. Coming up next, what is AFib and how can it lead to stroke? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Atrial fibrillation, or AFib, affects an estimated 2.2 million people in the U.S., and its strong connection to stroke makes it something we should all know about. Here to fill us in on what we need to know are Lori Langdon, a registered nurse and the Heart Failure Program Coordinator, and Michelle Vallelunga, a registered nurse as well and the Data Coordinator for Upstate's Level 1 Comprehensive Stroke Center. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Lori, let me begin with you. Let's, let's help us all understand what we mean when we say atrial fibrillation or AFib. What exactly is it? Okay, um, well the heart has its own electrical system and the heart itself is a pump and it has to pump blood through the whole body. But it's the electrical part of the heart that actually makes the heart beat, which you feel when you feel your pulse. So with atrial fib, it's a type of heart rhythm disorder and it's called an arrhythmia. And it's called that because there's a fault in the electrical activity and it causes the heart to either beat irregularly or it becomes very uncoordinated in how it beats. So it's really um, a glitch in the electrical part of the heart. But what about that, you know, creates this whole connect, kind of connection with stroke? I mean, what what's the problem with it beating too fast or, or I guess, not too slow? It's usually it's too fast. Mm -hmm. what, what does it do, you know, mechanistically to create a problem? Okay, there are, actually, you have four chambers in your heart, and there's an upper one, there's upper ones and lower ones. The signals come from the upper chamber, and they go down to the lower chamber and tell the heart to beat. But what happens in atrial fib, instead of one signal going from point A to point B, you can have like 100 and 150 different signals just popping all over the place, and some get through and some don't. And what happens is that upper chamber just does not contract. It doesn't um, squeeze in synchrony. Doesn't do its job. Yeah, it just doesn't do its job. And what happens is blood can pool, and that's where the clots can come into play. So that's really the danger. That's that it the dangerous part. In the wrong spot, mm -hmm. and clots can develop and then shoot out in some way and create any number of issues exactly. for you. Mm -hmm. So, how common is it? Um, it's really a very common, it's actually the most 
common heart arrhythmia that there is. And about over 2 million Americans have atrial fib. And the thing is, our risk increases with age. Um, and actually, the number of people with AFib, it actually doubles every decade of our life over the age of 50. So it actually is a very common thing. You know, it's very interesting. You would think that, I mean, sometimes I marvel at the fact that our heart is beating continually, and some people can literally live into their late 90s, mm-hmm. even into their hundreds, and that heart is still going, which is really kind of an amazing thing. So it, it's not unexpected that you would think that some some electrical issues or some problems could, mm-hmm. could take place, especially as we age. So, Michelle, how does what's the relationship then? We've talked a little bit about this idea of a clot forming. What's the likelihood or, or has having AFib lead, leave you more likely to have a stroke? Yes, and, and what happens with that clot, of course, is it comes out of the heart and can get lodged into one of the arteries of the brain, and that basically causes a blockage. And because of that blocked artery, the tissue that would normally get that nice, oxygenated, rich blood from the heart is blocked. Um, The blood can no longer get through, and the tissue dies off. So that's really um, the mechanism of the stroke. And um, with AFib, you're about five times more likely to have a stroke than just the general population. So not everybody who has AFib goes on to have a stroke, right. but the incidence or the prevalence is higher in those who have AFib. Right. And AFib, you know, like, you, like you're saying, AFib pretty much is, is a risk factor for stroke. So it makes you that five times more likely. Um, Lori, if somebody has AFib, does that mean they will always have it? In other words, let's say at age 50 or something, they have some incidents, and we'll talk about what it's like to feel AFib. Mm-hmm. Does that mean they are a patient who is it has AFib for the rest of their life? Does it come and go? What's it like? Yes, um, atrial fib can come and go um, because some people there's the reason they go into it is maybe heart surgery or maybe they have an episode of heart failure and then it it can go away. So it can come and go. Um, But the, um, or it can be under control. It can also be under control. We'll talk about how it's controlled. Mm -hmm. But the point is if you, once you're diagnosed with it, you really have to think of yourself as someone who has it, so to speak. But how how does someone know they have it? What are some of the symptoms? Well, that's the problem with atrial fib. A lot of times people just do not have symptoms, and that's what makes it very dangerous because people who have it are at risk for stroke. But um, some of the symptoms are a fast, pounding, um, irregular heartbeat. And when that happens, it can make you dizzy. It can make you feel very short of breath because the heart just isn't pumping as efficiently as it should. So you can become dizzy. Some people pass out. Um, some people have the extreme of chest pain or chest tightness. So really, I always tell people, if you're not feeling right, you know what your body normally feels like. Just don't ignore symptoms like that. Well, it almost could be a heart attack, too. Yes, yes. So obviously, mm-hmm. any of those kinds of symptoms mm-hmm. would suggest something. something's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. But it can be something as simple as just a little fluttering feeling in the chest as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. So who is most at risk? You Both of you were alluding to the fact that age plays a role but tell us a little bit more about who's most at risk for this Um, like we said the increased age but also people with high blood pressure um, diabetics are more at risk Um, having a problem with your heart valves can also put you at risk having a previous heart attack uh, thyroid problems uh, sleep apnea oh really yeah sleep apnea actually really does put a lot of stress on the heart And um, excessive alcohol intake or illegal drug use, any of those things can actually cause atrial fib. So we don't, do they exactly know what, other than the advanced age making you more predisposed, I think more predisposed to anything going wrong as you age, but do they understand why some people get it and others do not? It's not really not very well understood, um, but anything that, like after heart surgery or heart attack, there's a lot of, um, there can be like swelling on the inside of the heart after heart surgery that can cause that because your electrical system is embedded in your into your heart muscle. So there's disruption in some way yes. in the normal functioning of the mm-hmm. heart. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anything of that nature. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen 
Cohen, along with stroke prevention experts Lori Langdon and Michelle Vallalunga. We're talking about atrial fibrillation, or AFib, and stroke, and what you need to know. So, Michelle, how is AFib diagnosed? Um, well, the, the most common uh, way to diagnose it is to do an electrocardiogram. So your physician will do that. Um, as well as you can do, um, you can check your own pulse by feeling your wrist. Um, and if you don't, you know, you would feel a much faster beat um, and you, it would not be regular. You'd be able to tell in that case. Um, or your, your physician, of course, can um, check and hear that irregularity with if he's, he or she's listening with a stethoscope. So obviously it really needs to be accurately diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So I would say if you're experiencing any of these potential Absolutely. symptoms, you want to go to a healthcare mm -hmm. provider mm -hmm. and ascertain whether you really have AFib. So what are the medications, Lori? Um, or what are the treatments, rather? Well, there's um, a couple of different treatments, but um, typically they start with medications. Um, you either, there's two things you're trying to do, is either get the heart back into a normal rhythm, and, or if the rate is very fast, you want to get that heart rate under control, because heart rates, when you're in AFib, can get up into the 150s and higher. And um, so you want to get that underneath control. And the other thing um, is the stroke prevention, so you want to do anticoagulants or blood thinners. If medications don't work, um, you can also try cardioversion in which the heart is shocked back into a normal rhythm. And the other thing are some more invasive things called an ablation or a pace and ablate procedure. And those are just a little bit more invasive, but you usually try the medications and the cardioversion so just, first. So just for the lay person, basically you're trying to do things that in terms of medications, like beta blockers, things that slow the heart down, mm -hmm or the anticoagulants so that if you do form a clot, you're less like, or the tendency that is there to form a clot, you're basically preventing clot formation by giving someone an anticoagulant. And then the procedural things, like you said, if it's bad enough, perhaps, it depends on severity or frequency, mm -hmm. they might actually try to do things like put some kind of a catheter in your heart, deliver some heat, and mm -hmm. change the way this rhythm system is working. Mm -hmm. Sometimes yeah. they also will use a pacemaker, am I right? Yes, um, sometimes they'll do that as well. So Michelle, help us understand what someone who has AFib needs to know in terms of stroke prevention. Right, I think um, one of the biggest, I kind of like to think of it in, in three different areas. Um, the first thing you can do is to educate yourself. Um, learn what you can learn, use different resources that are out there, um, be an active uh, participant in your own health, talk to your doctor, and I think the more with AFib, since it is fairly complicated um, and it's something that does stay with you through your life, you're going to definitely want to learn as much as you can about that. So you need to be educated, um, and you want to make sure that you are working in partnership with your doctor. So if you are, for example, given some of those anticoagulant medications, which as many of us know have to be followed very closely and may involve blood draws, frequent blood draws, um, depending on the type of medication they prescribe, you want to make sure that you go for those blood draws, that you... Um, follow any of the recommendations that, that the physician does because they're really trying to help control that blood level and the level of that medication in your system. So you really need to be compliant. Absolutely. You need to be a cooperative patient. That's key. Right. And I think, um, you know, since AFib um, tends to end up in a lot of the elderly patients, we always encourage our, our patients to you know, um, ask for help, use a resource, use a family member um, to make sure they go for their appointments, keep a journal, um, and, you know, take someone with them so that they can have a resource to help them be compliant. So basically, in ter so you're saying basically do your treatment, right. but are there other things that people should know in terms of what to look out for, what to be aware of? I mean, if you are an AFib patient. Right. I yeah, I think one of well, one of the biggest things along with medication is um, blood pressure control. So being aware of your blood pressure, um, working again, working with your physician to control that, 
and some of the um, heart healthy habits that we all are told about um, are definitely things that the patient themselves have control over. Um, controlling their cholesterol through their diet, through regular physical activity. Um, are you limited to physical? In other words, if you have AFib and it's it's under control or you're in medication or what have you, do you have to worry about exerting yourself with any kind of exercise program? Not usually, no. And and you, you definitely would want to check with the doctor just to make sure what you're undertaking is, is okay. But generally speaking, they, they encourage that person with AFib to be as physically active as they can. So the point is it needs to get under control. You need to have it diagnosed properly. Mm -hmm. You need to have it under control either through the combination of medications, potentially some procedural thing. But you need to also be on the watch for this potential danger of stroke. And help us again, remind us, we know we've heard it many, many times. Mm -hmm. What are we on the lookout for when it comes to stroke? For stroke, um, there are uh, several things that you want to look at. You want to um, be concerned if you have sudden numbness or weakness, especially on one side of the body. And the sudden piece is important too because usually with stroke, it's a sudden onset. It is something that all of a sudden just comes on you. Um, you also want to be concerned if you have sudden confusion, trouble speaking or trouble understanding. Also vision, if you have trouble seeing, that could also be a warning sign for stroke. Um, and dizziness, trouble walking, loss of balance, um, that sometimes isn't in our profile, as well as a sudden severe headache. So, there, and they often say that FAST, um, Lori, that, that F-A-S-T is the acronym that's used, again, to underscore the importance of reacting quickly mm -hmm. to those symptoms. But remind us what those mean. Do you remember one yes. Is face? Well, yes, face, arm, speech, and time. Okay, and, and time being the key. The very key, because the quicker that you can get for stroke treatment, the greater uh, your chances are for a better outcome. So I guess what's the takeaway, both of you, either of you, just a little bit of time we have left. Well, you first. Um, for AFib, um, pay attention to, to your, listen to your body. And if you notice that you are, have any of those symptoms that we discussed, especially the pounding in your chest or the fluttering, get that checked out. That would be the biggest thing. And take your medicines, take your medication. Yeah, and basically look out for anything mm -hmm. that could be a stroke. Right. And get to the hospital. Get yes. to the hospital <laughs> as, as quick soon as, as you possible. can. That's right. Thank you so much. My guests have been Lori Langdon, a registered nurse and the Heart Failure Program Coordinator, and Michelle Vallalunga, a registered nurse and the Data Coordinator for Upstate's Level 1 Comprehensive Stroke Center. Next up, a Wikipedian in residence gives us the lowdown on getting the most reliable health and medical information online today. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. In this age of information at our fingertips, the internet has become a fount of facts about health and medicine today. But the veracity and credibility of this information is not always reliable. One key player in this information boom has been Wikipedia. Here to give us an inside look at its role in health and medical information is Lane Raspberry. He's a Wikipedian in residence for Consumer Reports. Thanks so much for coming in, Lane. Thank you so much, Linda. So help us understand, let's begin by helping us understand exactly what is Wikipedia. Wikipedia is a free online encyclopedia that anyone can edit. When I say that anyone can edit, what I mean is that anyone who has information to contribute to the encyclopedia can go to the website. At any given article in the encyclopedia, there's an edit button at the top of the page. A person can click that. Uh, a text box comes up, like a word processor, and they can change any of the information or text within the article. But why was this developed? I mean, what was the, the, the kind of concept behind this? I mean, does it represent some kind of a social movement? Tell us a little bit more about it. 
there is a bit of a social movement behind Wikipedia. So there is a Wikipedia community. This is the group of people, volunteers, who uh, are developing the encyclopedia. They meet together in the Wikipedia project and discuss how information can be delivered to people. When Wikipedia was founded, the founder said that uh, he wanted the Wikipedia community to imagine a world in which every single person has access to the sum of all human knowledge mm. and said, this is what we're going to do together. That's quite a large mission. <laughs> it, it was ambitious and it was a crazy idea at the time and it's still, uh, it's still a very ambitious idea. It's not just about having the best possible information in Engli English language, it's actually about translating it into everyone's uh, native language so that everyone can access it no matter where they are in the world. So it's really a global initiative in a sense to at share the best information Absolutely, that we have in uh, any in any given field, uh, any any culture, any language, anywhere in the world that has people who use the internet, they also have access to Wikipedia, and there's Wikipedians in those countries as well. So, what does it mean to be a Wikipedian in residence? What exactly is that? Sure. So, first, I'm a, I'm a Wikipedian. Uh, I've volunteered for Wikipedia for for many years, and what that means is I'm an encyclopedia editor. If it comes to happen that there's a particular organization that decides they'd like to distribute or disseminate their information through Wikipedia, then they might hire a staff Wikipedian, and that person is usually called a Wikipedian in residence. A Wikipedian in residence is a liaison between that organization and the Wikipedia community. And in this case, that's Consumer Reports. You represent them or their interests in some ways. Uh, well, here's how it goes. I represent Consumer Reports on Wikipedia. Uh, I represent Wikipedia to Consumer Reports. It goes both ways. Interesting. So how did you become a Wikipedian? I was doing... Or what motivated you? Let's, let's start with that. Sure. Well, I, I guess I could say that I had, uh, for, for different, different reasons, professional and personal, I wanted to communicate health information. And I tried everything that I could. I, I set up blogs. I tried to talk with news organizations. And what I had to, the information that I had to share was rather conservative. It was right out of the medical journals. But I felt like this information that everybody ought to have access to is not available anywhere that I can find on the web. How can I publish this information? After trying uh, a lot of websites, so different kinds of social media, setting up websites, uh, I came to realize that Wikipedia had already attracted an audience that I thought would be desirable to reach. And because of the audience that was already going to Wikipedia, I decided to make the compromises that I needed to make to be able to publish on Wikipedia. And the biggest compromise that a person has to make is that a lot of branding is lost when anyone uh, contributes their information well, to Wikipedia. Well, you do it anonymously in a sense, right? It's, it's pseudo-anonymously. So there's not, uh, author, cre author credit, is possible to see within Wikipedia, but it's certainly not prominent. Someone would have to actually request to see who is the list of editors to this article. Uh, the focus in Wikipedia is on distributing the information that the reader is trying to get, not on propagating a brand. So it's interesting. So your motivation really stemmed more from your interest in health and medical information than in this kind of um, philosophy of wanting to be a part of this kind of dissemination of information. Absolutely. But if I did have to point to a philosophy that influenced Wikipedia, there's an open access movement. And I would say the values of the open access movement or the open content movement, open educational movement, heavily influenced the development of Wikipedia. So how long have you been, had you been doing this? Or how long have you been doing this, I guess? You said you've been a Wikipedian before you got involved with Consumer Reports. Mm -hmm. And I want to get a little bit more illumination on what that relationship is, actually. There's different things that I could say about this. Wikipedia was founded in 2001. It just had its 15th birthday. A lot of people don't realize how much time has passed and how long Wikipedia has been in the world. I actually edited Wikipedia uh, for the first time in 2004. Wow. Like many people who edit Wikipedia for the first time, I, I didn't get it. And I had a long relationship with Wikipedia before I actually understood what it means to edit Wikipedia and, and what, the, what the community guidelines and rules are. Explain that. Uh, well, uh, if I were to explain the fundamental rule of Wikipedia, and this is something that, that many people don't get, uh, it's not, when, when the truth is, is presented on Wikipedia, it's supposed to be a reflection 
of the best available published sources that anyone can find. So you need to have citations and all of that. Heavy citations. So uh, Wikipedia requests that after every sentence or every fact that's presented, there should be a citation to the most reliable, trusted source that anyone's been able to find. And that way, if anyone reads a sentence on Wikipedia and they want to verify it, they should be able to follow the references, go to the original authority, and verify that the content presented in Wikipedia is accurate. Quite understandable, because when you think that you open up a platform like that for a dissemination of information worldwide, and someone might have a bias, a bent, or some even nefarious motivation, if, it, there's, if it's unfounded, there's no foundation to it, it could do more damage than good. That's right. And so when we judge the merit of contributions to Wikipedia, merit is not judged by the person who contributed the information. So we, we don't give any uh, particular credit to authority or rank or hierarchy. Uh, what we judge is the quality of the source being cited and the extent to which information in Wikipedia is a reflection of that source. So getting back to that point, let's, I want to get, there's so many questions that I'd like to ask you, and I hope we don't run out of time. But this idea of, well, first of all, when you work for and with Consumer Reports, tell me about that role real quick. Sure. So Consumer Reports, it's a nonprofit consumer and media organization. Consumer Reports was interested. They, they had a health outreach campaign, an informational campaign. It was called Choosing Wisely. And in this campaign, there were health messages that they wanted to share about un unnecessary health care and uh, making sure that doctors and patients talk together about the care that patients are getting. But again, with no bias except to share, uh, to illuminate the subject. There's, there's a bias in everything. And okay. the, the bias in this case was to present conservative information from the academic journals, medical journals, especially systematic reviews and review articles. Uh, a lot of the information from this campaign actually came from Cochrane, which is a very conservative journal, pr presents, um, presents standard information. So the, in, in this health campaign, and this is a model for what anyone else can do, there were a series of health messages, and each of those health messages was paired to a citation in the medical journals. And so Consumer Reports had a goal of distributing this health information to as many people as possible, and they decided that since many people were going to Wikipedia to seek health information, if they were to put the information in from this health campaign into Wikipedia. As opposed to just publishing it in their own magazine. Exactly. And then, so th that can happen too. But the idea is, uh, considering the time commitment that it takes to put, put things in Wikipedia, it's efficient to also share your information there and, and reach Wikipedia's audience in addition to whatever, whatever else the organization might do. Hold that thought a minute. If yes, you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Wikipedian in residence for Consumer Reports, Lane Raspberry. And we're talking about the reliability of health and medical information in this very popular site. Now, let's get to it before we, before we lose any opportunity. How reliable then is the information in Wikipedia when it comes to health and medical issues? I know you can't speak to the larger concern beyond that. It's a difficult question to answer directly, and what I, what I could say is that there's a certain amount of academic research on the topic. Uh, people have given their opinions about the reliability of Wikipedia, but uh, Wikipedia is in flux, the internet is in flux, and it's difficult to uh, assess, even with all the academic literature on the subject, how reliable Wikipedia is. What uh, My personal feeling is that Wikipedia is comparable in quality to whatever else anyone might find on the internet. Some of the competitors for health information include websites like WebMD, NIH, uh, the National Health Service. Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic, yes. PubMed. Uh, and to some extent, e each one of these is uh, targeting a different audience. So uh, I think it's worthwhile to consider what is the spectrum of information in any given topic. And just because one website might be good for a certain kind of health information, say medical conditions or diseases, another one of these websites might be appropriate for, say, uh, drugs or therapies. And then also there's the level of um, literacy or the scope of the information. So some people might want more technical information and some people might want more nuanced information on particular topics. Absolutely. But the question is the credibility. In other words, in reliability of the information, I guess. I understand what you're mm -hmm. saying. It's like, you know, everyone likes multiple flavors. It's not vanilla yes. for all. Mm -hmm. 
But in terms of the facts, mm -hmm. are you do you feel fairly confident that if someone were to read Wikipedia on a particular health issue, they would be getting accurate and credible information? I'm confident. I, I personally am confident that people get quality information from Wikipedia. I could say that there's a quality control process on Wikipedia also. Whenever anyone adds information to Wikipedia, again, there's that Wikipedia community behind things. And, uh, every and are they real people? Real, real people from all over the world. And they meet in cyberspace? I mean, how does that work? Well, look, we, we, we have in-person conferences as well. So okay. there's, there's a Wikipedia community, a Wikimedia movement. People uh, have, have personal relationships. We, we meet by email, phone, Skype, in, in any way that you can imagine people okay. collaborating. And then go on. So how do they verify information? Well, when somebody, when somebody adds content anywhere on Wikipedia, there's different le levels of verification. The first level of verification is that there's a Wikipedia patrol, Wikipedia police. They give, they give things a glance. And the first thing that gets checked is if someone adds information, is that information followed by a citation to a source? So that's one level of check. And then another, le another level of check might be, uh, so someone might identify someone's added health information. Perhaps the person who's reviewed that doesn't have expertise in health, and so it gets escalated. Can somebody check to see, is this a reliable source of information in the context of health? So someone with more expertise. And then if more expertise is required, the submission and on gets... And on and on. And on and on, So yes. the bottom line is there really are layers of um, evaluation going on and, and analysis to make sure that the information is largely accurate. What impact do you think the, the uh, Wikipedia... Is, we're focusing now, I think, to say in the global sense, it's probably had an enormous impact mm -hmm. on information. I think people aren't selling encyclopedias anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, but in terms of health and medical information, what do you think the impact has been? So you just asked me about quality. And to some extent, there's, uh, there's two aspects that one should consider if they're talking about impact. One is the, the quality of information, and the other is the access to information. There's some research that suggests, and many people who believe, that Wikipedia is the world's most consulted source of health information. That's a bit awkward. It was never intended at the founding of Wikipedia, but since no one else has stepped up to take, take this role, and then Wikipedia has said, we're going to cover all information to the, to the best of our ability to do so, it's happened that uh, search engines, such as Google, uh, Bing, DuckDuckGo, have said that if there's a Wikipedia article covering a, a particular topic, then if someone types in terms into the search engine looking for that topic, then preferentially the search engine will serve a Wikipedia article. And so one might say that the audience that uses Wikipedia is not people who go to Wikipedia looking for information, but rather Wikipedia gets the audience of people who are looking for information online. So to the preferentially, yes, to the to the extent that online internet search matters, the health information on Wikipedia matters. Interesting. Hmm. Very briefly, because I don't want to run out of time, you're here today to, to show people here at Upstate Medical University how to get involved, how to edit themselves. Is that correct? Is it complicated to do? Uh, I've told you the most complicated part. When someone adds a sentence to Wikipedia, it should be followed by a citation to a reliable source. So you have to do research to do this properly. That's right. Uh, we, we need expertise. The technical process of editing Wikipedia isn't so difficult. What's much more scarce is having people with expertise in a given field and who know the reliable sources to cite uh, to get them to either add information or perhaps for them to uh, encourage their social circle to add information. And by social circle, one of the most common instances is having a professor in a classroom, for example, say, instead of the students writing doing research and writing a report for the professor, could the students perhaps add a few sentences to Wikipedia covering whatever the, the class is And that's being studying. done more and more, I guess. The, you know, I, I feel so frustrated because I have so many more questions, but I'm sad to say we have run out of time. I want to thank you so very much for coming in and illuminating this very interesting topic to us. I mean, I think anyone who uses the Internet daily runs into Wikipedia um, information, and it's really helpful to hear kind of the backstory here. So thank you so very much. My guest has been Lane Raspberry. He's the Wikipedian in residence for Consumer Reports. Thanks again, and I hope you have a, a great experience here at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. I'm reading an excerpt from Rick Kempa's essay about caring for his mom, who's in the beginning stages of Alzheimer's. It's called Nothing Between Us Now But Love and describes a road trip he took with her. Now the thoughts are roiling through me. Today she is not the burden we have let her become in the time she's been a member of our house. She is not the responsibility that weighs on me. She is not, forgive me, the fretful woman whose continual repetitions I learn to ignore or divert or even at my worst rebuke. She is on this afternoon of wondrous clarity, an old friend sharing a journey on the most beautiful road in the world. I am flooded with a warmth for her of a kind that I do not remember ever feeling, and I think, let me pay as close attention to this day as I can. Let me imprint it forever. But for her, there will be, there is no imprint being made, no chance for us of the rare pleasure that connects two people forever, the shared memory of a day lived well together, a bond as unique as any in the universe. There will only be aloneness, hers and mine. Mom, I tell her, it may well be that you will forget this afternoon, but I don't want you to worry because I'm going to remember it for both of us. Her hand reaches over and clasps my sleeve. Her voice rings with relief. Oh, would you please? That would mean so much. I promise, I say. Eventually, we find a place to pull over and I help her out of the car. I look at her, perched on the bumper beside me, her white hair jutting out beneath the baseball cap, a black vest pulled up around her neck, her eyes gleaming behind those dark glasses. She takes a tiny sip of the beer that I pass to her, licks her lips, passes it back. I am content as I have ever been. Come what may, there is nothing between us now but love, just as it was at the beginning. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when the field of urology is our focus as we take a look at pelvic floor disorders, pediatric urologic conditions, and erectile dysfunction, and what you need to know. And if you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.